young pastors to consider starting something new. Uh, the church I pastored uh, and planted, Green Tree Community Church in Kirkwood, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis, uh, back in 1998, uh, we began Green Tree Community Church. And over the almost 24 years I was pastor there, we planted six churches in and around the greater St. Louis area. And then we had a hand uh, financially in investing in four or five other church plants around the country. Uh, in uh, around 2011, the leader of our denomination, a guy named Jeff Jeremiah, uh, approached me and he said, would you be interested in trying to create a church planting culture in our denomination? Uh, and I, I said, well, i got to think about that and, and pray about that. It's hard enough to do in my own church, much less an entire denomination. But God put all the pieces together, and my elders were very gracious to give me some time uh, away uh, each uh, month to do that. And so we began a fascinating journey of trying to figure out how to encourage Presbyterians who haven't done anything new for 200 years to try and <laughs> grasp the idea of starting uh, something new. And I'm from the Midwest, so we're just as stubborn as y'all. Don't, don't be confused about that whatsoever. But it's been an absolutely fascinating journey. Uh, and one of the things I want to say before we dive into the Word this morning, some of you may know this, I'm sure some of you do, some of you may not, I want to say thank you. Because if I were going to list the top five churches in the EPC in the entire nation and their investment in church planting, Central Presbyterian Church would be in that top five. Y'all are not the biggest church in our denomination. You have a wonderful pastor. I just found out a few minutes ago he's musical. I've known him for over a decade. I didn't even know that. Uh, you all have a wonderful pastor. Uh, you have, live in a wonderful community, but you're not a gigantic mega church with hundreds of thousands of dollars to place in the offering, so to speak, and yet year in and year out, Central Presbyterian Church invests significantly in church planting around our country. And so I want to say thank you uh, on behalf of our denomination. I stepped away from my pulpit about nine months ago, and hopefully it's like riding a bike. You don't, you get back on it, you can do it, hopefully. Uh, and by the way, Randy said he usually preaches for an hour. I'm only going to be about half of that this morning, so we'll be... <laughs> Uh, we'll be okay. But uh, when we started, we had about five church plants around the country. Uh, the first thing our little team did was close one of them. It was a very unhealthy group, so we went backwards before we went forward, and that was about 11 years ago, and I'm, I'm very happy and, and proud in Christ, not proud in my effort, but proud in what the Lord has done. We, uh, we are on the verge of having 60 active church plants around the country uh, today as we speak. And so God's moving. Uh, he's... He's using, he's using your investment, uh, and he's multiplying it. I, I don't know how many fold. So there are people that know Jesus today that didn't know Jesus even this time last year uh, because of what you guys are doing. So thank you for that. And I understand now as we turn our attention to the word that y'all have been talking about evangelism, about sharing the gospel with others. And so I want to I stay on that theme this morning, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about attitude than I am about action. I want to read for you, before I, we read the scripture, I want to read for you a quote from a guy named David Justly. David was, until just very recently, pastor of New Testament theology at Reform Seminary, the campus over in Jackson, Mississippi, just a little bit west of here. And in the early 2000s, David Justly wrote this. I've never seen a believer who was saved by simply watching someone's life. To be saved, people must hear and believe the verbal testimony about Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. He quotes out of Romans there. However, 
I've met hundreds of people who made their initial movement toward the gospel message because they saw it trans- its transforming power in another person's life. The way we live before others really matters. Uh, at Green Tree, when I was uh, uh, preaching on a regular basis, I would tell everybody at the beginning of the sermon, this is the sermon in a sentence, so you can track with me, and so that I can stay on track myself. That last sentence I read you is the sermon in the sentence this morning. The way we live before others really matters. Our scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 3, verse 3. Would you please stand with me as we hear the word of God? Paul, writing to the Corinthians, writes this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient? For these things. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and to be read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Will you pray with me for just a moment? Father, we have worshipped you this morning with our voices, with our prayers, for the giving of our tithes and offerings. Father, we have worshipped you by being here this morning and acknowledging your presence in our lives. Now, Father, we ask that you would empower us to worship you with our thoughts, with our intellect, with our reason, uh, that you would touch our, not only our hearts emotionally, but that you would touch our minds with your word. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to your teaching, to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, in talking about our attitude and the way we live our lives in this passage, says there were three things. We are trophies on display, we are a distinct fragrance, and we are letters of grace. I want to look at each one of those for just a moment as we consider how we live before others and the importance thereof. Paul says in verse Uh, 14 of chapter 2, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Anybody ever been to a ticker tape parade? I live in St. Louis. We have uh, 11 world championships in baseball. Uh, Only the Yankees have more. Now my hockey team hasn't fared so well, but a few years compared to his in Pittsburgh, but a few years ago my St. Louis Blues won the Stanley Cup, and there were over a million people that showed up in downtown St. Louis. If you've ever driven through, you know where the arch is. We were all on the arch grounds, and everybody was celebrating, and our colors were blue and gold, and there was confetti and balloons, and it was absolutely astounding. When we think of a joyful procession, we tend to think about 
Neil Armstrong coming back from the, the moon, a, a sports team winning, a, uh, winning some championship. The procession that Paul's talking about here is actually when Caesar comes back to Rome and the procession is all the legions are behind him, but in front of him are all of the vanquished foes. The people who used to be generals of entire armies and rulers of kingdoms are now in shackles and are being preceded uh, in front of Caesar, paraded in front of Caesar for everyone to see that he is king, that he is lord, and he has vanquished all of his enemies. And what Paul says is we're the captives of Christ. This is not a ticker tape parade. This is not a place where we're standing up and celebrating. This is where we understand that our lives, our rebellion against God, our anger towards him, our resentment of him, our wanting to disassociate from him have all been crushed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I probably would say, well, I remember my moment of conversion when I joyfully embraced the saving message of the gospel. And Paul uses the word joyful here in triumphal procession, the notion of joy here. But the idea here is that, that prior to our conversion, we were not right with God, and we didn't want to be right with God. We have been captured, as it were, by Jesus. I'm going to read just a couple of verses out of Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him we were hostile in mind tom ricks was hostile in mind against god that's who i was apart from christ but thanks be to god i've been captured by jesus my rebellion has been broken my antagonism towards god has been overcome and has been conquered and i am now on display for all the world to see not just to listen to but to see so when i'm in the grocery store this week fighting for that turkey because i forgot to go get it when i was supposed to go get it and there's only a couple of them left in the in the in the shelf there when i am when i'm at the bank when when i'm at the ball field with my kids uh, yelling and screaming at the referee because clearly they don't understand that my child is destined for Major League Baseball. <laughs> Do people see Jesus? Do they see a trophy of his that has been conquered? Let's be clear about this biblically. biblically. Paul says in Romans 5, while we were weak, Jesus died for that. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he realized that he hadn't said it strong enough. So he said, while we were sinners, while we were failing to live up to that to which God had called us. Christ died for us. And then again, inspired by the Spirit, he needed to put some icing on the cake. And he says this, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. I need to hear that over and over again. I need to be reminded that I was an enemy of God. Not just a, a casual observer who said, ah, I don't think I need Jesus right now, but actually an enemy of the gospel. And every person who's a believer in Jesus prior to coming to Christ for salvation attitudinally is an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been thinking about enemies this week. Uh, just recently we had the, the 21st, it's hard to believe, 21st uh, anniversary of 9-11. And I watched a couple of the specials and were reminded I, I, was, I was in uh, 
Those were the early days of Green Tree Community Church, and we actually shared an office with the butcher in our town. Literally, you, you know, in the wintertime, it was wonderful. You could smell the, what was being smoked in the summertime, not so much. But I remember that morning when we came in, and, and Cindy had called me, and she said, I, I, have the, I have the TV on, and there's some kind of plane crash in New York in the World Trade Center. And, and as she was talking, she said, oh, no, there's another one. I said, no, no, you must be watching some kind of repeat. When I think about enemies, you think about people that are out to get you. I kind of half expected, I understand I'm in Alabama this morning, the week before Thanksgiving, in a little thing y'all called Iron Bowl. Uh, my, our youngest son went to the University of Alabama, so for all you Auburn folks, I apologize. Uh, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving at his aunt and uncle's house, and his aunt went to Auburn, so he's a little bad. But I thought maybe the Crimson would be over there, and the War Eagles would be over there. Y'all kind of this week understand enemies a little bit. You don't, folks you talk to and love all year long, you don't talk to them this week. Because they went to Auburn or they, they wear that crimson or whatever the case may be. We need to understand in the Christian community that we were enemies. God didn't look at me and say, he's, I'm going to save him because he's one of the best and one of the brightest. And he's really friendly towards us. God looked at the angst in my heart towards him. And he decided that wasn't going to stand in the way of him extending his grace and his mercy to me. And when the Christian community lives with a sense of wrongful pride... And believing that, that we're saved because we were maybe a little bit better than our next door neighbor or the folks down the street or, or our business partner or, or those folks that don't believe what we believe. We tend to live out of a human pride that is destructive. You're never going to have an opportunity. I'm never going to have an opportunity to talk to somebody about the faith I have in Christ if it isn't seen in my life. And yet when we are captured, the capture of Christ is glorious. Why? Because it ends our brokenness. It ends our condition of sinfulness. It doesn't change the fact that we still can be sinners at times, but it ends that condition and that gives us a new life, which creates within us not a sense of shame, but a sense of loyalty, a sense of, of wanting to, to care for others. Uh, I coached a lot of hockey in my adult life, and towards the end of my coaching career, I was coaching a high school team, and we had a young lady join our team. Her name was Jessica Dunn. Jessica Dunn was a very good hockey player, and in, in those days, we're going back 15 years ago, uh, the young ladies, if they were good enough, they could play on, on the guy's team, and she was good enough. She ended up going to Ohio State on a hockey scholarship. Her little sister was in the U.S. Women's Olympic program for hockey players. She was very good. We were playing a preseason game, and there was a fellow on the other side that just kind of kept going after her. He kept, like, they'd go in the corner, and he'd kind of give her an elbow, or he'd kind of... And, and the guys on our team were like, what's wrong with 17? What's that guy's problem? This is a preseason game. And, why? and they started getting fired up. And about halfway through the third period, towards the end of the game, this guy who's been picking on, on Jessica the whole game comes across center ice, the middle of the ice, with his head down and the puck on his stick. And that's a recipe for disaster, unless you're a defenseman or a defensewoman. And then it's like, you know, Thanksgiving Day. And she lined him up perfectly. And she checked him, and he crumpled to the ice. But her momentum kept her going, and she fell on top of him. And as they fell to the ice, they roll over. He's on top, and he's punching her in the head. Now, they have helmets on. They have kind of gloves that have cushions on them. But he's punching her. We're like, what's going on? Well, they, the momentum keeps them going, and now she's on top. And she's landing haymaker after haymaker. And we're like, yeah, get him, get him, get him. And, and you're not, as a coach, you're like, don't do that. You know, you're supposed to have the right attitude. So she goes to the penalty box. A couple minutes later, she comes back. She's at the bench. She won't even turn around and look at me. She's just looking for it like that. I said, Jessica, what are, what are you doing? 
What were you thinking? It was a preseason game. Let him, let him take the penalty. Don't do that. She doesn't even look. She doesn't even turn around. She just says that way. Coach, he took my best friend to prom last year, and he is such a jerk. <laughs> now, is there anybody in here who's actually played on a hockey team, actually played organized hockey? Nobody. Okay. <laughs> Uh, thank you. So you know that there's one piece of that story that's incorrect. She didn't use the word jerk. I can't say what she said in church, right? Because hockey players are colorful. But she was not going to let her friend be bested. She was loyal. She was there. And her life showed it, even in a goofy high school hockey game. Does your life, does my life look like I've been captured by Christ? Secondly, I've moved this along. Secondly, Paul says, we are a distinct fragrance of Christ. We're led in triumphal procession, and the knowledge, excuse me, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. From one, the fragrance from death to death, to the other, the fragrance of life to life. So when Caesar's coming back to town, let's get back to ancient Rome, and Caesar's coming into town. Now, um, I just was in Virginia Beach the other day working on uh, some church planting there. And guess what you constantly hear in Virginia Beach? Anybody? Jet engines. Navy fighters are constantly flying over Virginia Beach. That's where the Norfolk Naval Station is right there, and they're always out there. To the extent that the realtors have to give you a disclosure that tells you if you're going to buy this house, how many times the jets fly over. You hear them before you see them, right? Ancient Rome, you heard the legions coming back before you saw them. The riders would come into town. The, the riders that were out front, Caesar's coming. He'll be here in three days. He'll be here in two days. They're right around the corner. They'll be here tomorrow. And the day before Caesar returned to town, everybody went to the market and bought all the fresh flowers they possibly could. If you were in the flower business, the day Caesar came back, that was a great day because you sold out. And then they took the flowers and they threw them on the pathway that Caesar was going to take as he marched into Rome. And as the captives, and then Caesar and the chariots, and then as the soldiers stepped on those flowers and crushed those petals, not only could you see it, not only could you hear it, but you could smell victory. It was in the air. If you were five blocks away, not only could you hear the parade, but you could smell the parade. This triumphant return, flowers uh, everywhere marked an unmistakable scent. But now think of the folks that are in the procession and watching the procession. There are different reactions from different folks, right? And Paul tells us very clearly because he knows that we get really worried about our reputation. We, we don't want to get shut out from, you know, we don't want to get kicked off of Twitter or off of Facebook or whatever because we, we, we put in the right word. We, we don't want social media to, you know, brand us as, as somebody bad. We care so desperately, you know, about our reputation. We get so nervous about that. And yet Paul wants us to understand that if you're going to be the fragrance of Christ, different people are going to have different reactions. I've shared, I don't know how many people I've shared the gospel with in my life. I, and I, that's not like a braggadocious statement. I just, I'm, I'm older and I've been a Christian a long time and I've had lots of opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. I don't know how many people have looked me in the eye and said, thanks, but no thanks. I don't know how many, I've had several people who have actually gotten a little upset with me. How dare you? say that there's only one way to Christ. And I've had other people say, tell me more about that. And I've had other people say, I want to come to Christ for salvation. We don't share because of the reaction we get. We share because it's the truth and people need it for life. But there are going to be different reactions. 
Think about those, those prisoners. Uh, we're joyful prisoners. That's where, the, that's where the illustration falls short, but they weren't joyful at all. If you were a king in a palace one day and now you're going to be a slave, that's a, that's a pretty tough transition to, to be able to swallow. And yet, the fragrance is the same for everyone. When, uh, when our kids were, we have three grown kids, uh, and they have, two of the three have kids now, so we're in the grandparenting stage. But when our kids were younger, we moved back to St. Louis, uh, we decided to go. You know, I'm kind of the quintessential Christmas tree guy, so, you know, just think Chevy Chase and Christmas vacation. And we're going to go out in the woods and cut down the tree and bring it back to the house and set it up, and we did. And we had a glorious time, and all three of the kids did this, uh, went with us, and we had a wonderful time, and this became a tradition. And about five years into our tradition, we began to realize that our oldest son, Nathan, every year at Christmas time would get really pretty sick. And it wasn't just like a little bit of a head cold, but he would get to the point where he had a deep cough and he could hardly breathe. And we finally figured out what the problem was. He was allergic to the Christmas tree. Now, the Christmas tree smelled the same to Nathan as it did to me, but my feeling when I, when I, that aroma when I came in the house was, I kind of went back to when I was a little boy. Kind of went back to Christmas morning to my family in the house that I grew up in. And my son smelled it and it smelled like death. It smelled like, now I can't even smell anything because it's, it's so oppressive. Same fragrance. How we live before people really matters, but understand that how we live before people includes being gracious even when people don't want to associate with us or are angry with us because of our faith in Christ. People's response is not the central goal of sharing the gospel. If I base my willingness to share the gospel with others on how they will respond to me, I will rarely put my toe into the water of telling somebody else about Jesus. If my attitude is one that understands this person may really hate me when we're done with this conversation, but hopefully graciously I will have told them about Jesus and I will live in front of them in a way that that points them to him, I I can let the chips fall where the chips fall. Did you listen carefully? Did we listen carefully when we were reading that Philippians passage just a few minutes ago? It's been granted on your, uh, on your behalf to suffer for the sake of Christ. Do you understand that that's an honor? Do I understand that that's an honor? And that I, I, It's not that I'm going to look for a fight, but attitudinally, am I anxious to share with people because I want them to know Jesus, not because I want them to like me. Towards the beginning of the second century, one of the last living known people to have associated with the apostles uh, was a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop in a town called Smyrna, one of the the cities that John writes to in the book of Revelation. Uh, You can read about Smyrna in Revelation if you want to, but he was the bishop in Smyrna, and in the early second century, the church came under, really for the first time, kind of a global persecution all over the Roman Empire. Polycarp had an amazing reputation in the city of Smyrna to the extent that the proconsul, the government, governor in the area, didn't want to kill him. He tried over and over again to talk him out of not recanting, of recanting his faith. He would say, if you would just, just kind of say it quietly, you don't even have to say it loud, down with the atheists. The Christians were considered atheists. He said, that's all you got to do. You don't even have to say it out loud. Just say it in my ear and I'll let everybody know they can go home now. We're not going to do anything. And Polycarp continued to refuse to the point where he said this, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, that I would recant, then I think you pretend that you do not know who I am. Hear it plainly. I am a Christian. 
Eighty and six years I have served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp understood not only was he a trophy on display, and he lived his life in such a way, his grace, his compassion, his mercy for the poor, for the rich, for everyone who came across his past was well known in his region. Everyone loved him, even those who ended up taking his life didn't want to do it because they knew what a gracious person he was, yet he understood that his fragrance was anathema to some, but that wasn't going to keep him from being loyal to Jesus. We're trophies, we're fragrance, and thirdly, we're letters of grace. Chapter 3, do we need some letters of recommendation to you? Or from you. Paul says, you yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You show that you are a letter from Christ. Think about a recommendation letter. Recommendation letter is usually given on your behalf, or maybe you've written a a letter of recommendation for someone. Uh, Maybe you have a younger associate uh, in your firm and they're applying for a, a position of larger responsibility or they're trying to get into law school or med school and you're a lawyer or a doctor who can have some influence and they, you write them a letter of recommendation. You're trying to introduce someone. Uh, I had a young assistant pastor years and years ago and we were looking for another assistant pastor. And he said, I want you to talk to my buddy. guy's name happened to be Jeremy. I want you to talk to Jeremy. And I, and I looked at his resume, I said, he's a little bit young, I don't think that's who we want, I, I'm just not convinced, but Mike, because you recommend him, I'll go and have lunch with him. And we left the lunch, and about four hours later, we offered him a job. As it turned out, Mike was brilliant, uh, and I was smart enough to listen to him. But I didn't know Jeremy, I just had the letter. Friends, the vast majority of people in the United States of America don't know Jesus. I see all the stats. I hear about how 75% of people in the United States claim to be Christians. If, if we want to open our eyes and get a dose of reality, it's nowhere near that. It's probably, it's probably not even 30%. There are plenty of people that need to have this letter of recommendation. They need to see in our lives that Jesus is somebody worth getting to know. But Paul says not only recommendation, but he talks in language of love letters. You are our letter, he says, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You're a letter from Christ. There's compassion and passion in those words. So a a recommendation letter, you want to know that what? That a person's competent, that they could do, get into school and do good work in the school, or if they join the business, they're capable to do that work. But in a love letter, it's a little different. I don't have any love letters here, to, or, or uh, recommendation letters that I could read to you on behalf of Cindy Ricks this morning about what a great wife she is. Now, I could do that, but you'd be like, seriously, Tom, what's wrong with you, right? And I'm, I'm not going to read a love letter. Don't panic. But I do, <laughs> she was getting real nervous. I need to clarify that real quick. There is going to be a cold car ride this afternoon. Um, I do write her love letters every once in a while. And I tell her what I really think. Husbands, let me encourage you to do that. I don't care if you've been married six months or 60 years. I've been married 41 years. Sit down and write it down. Tell your wife what you think about it. Let her know what she means to you. There's something about that emotional connection that is winsome and is desirous. And Paul says we are a love letter. It's written on our hearts. If I've been loved by Jesus, how how can I not share that love with others? And it's to be known and read by all. It's a classic. 
my life should, should be a classic. So even when I sin, even when I mess up, even when I don't look like Jesus, I can point people to what forgiveness looks like and what compassion looks like. How many of you here today know the American author, he's no longer living, but know the American author Sherwood Anderson? Do you teach English? Okay, that's, that's the absolute only way, only way, did I see another, did somebody over there, not, okay. Y'all know Sherwood Anderson, you just don't know that you know Sherwood Anderson. Sherwood Anderson only wrote really one great novel in his lifetime, I should say marginally good novel, it's called Winesburg, Ohio, and he wrote that uh, early 20th century, and it was a pretty good book, but in the late 19, 1919, as a matter of fact, a young man named Ernest Hemingway read that novel, and he went to Chicago, and he found Sherwood Anderson, and he asked him if he could just sit with him for a year and learn about writing. A few years later, Anderson had moved, as authors are often wont to do, kind of bounce around. He'd moved to New Orleans, and there was a knock on his door one day, and there was a young gentleman named William Faulkner. And Faulkner said, I've heard about you, I've read your book, could I just sit under your tutelage and learn from you? About five years after that, Anderson found himself in California where he met both Thomas Wolfe and John Steinbeck, who sought him out to be influenced by his writing ability. You know him because you've probably at least heard of or read three of these Nobel Prizes and four of the Pulitzer Prizes for literature that he produced through his tutelage of others. People may never know your name as the person who represented Jesus to so-and-so who became a Christian. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. What matters is that my life, attitudinally, is lived in a way before others that says Jesus is Savior and he's Lord and his grace is sufficient for you. Will you come to him for salvation? So let's wrap this thing up and talk about application for just a minute. Right now, is, it's our time. It's not just the church planter's time in the EPC. It's your time if you're a believer in Jesus this morning. It's my time if I'm a believer in Jesus this morning. There are people in your life who don't know him. There are people in my life who do not know Jesus. This is my time. This is my opportunity. Do I understand that I'm a trophy of Jesus's grace on display in order to hopefully lead to conversations that bear his fragrance, where I can share his love letter, not just to a lost and dying world in a very general nebulous sense, but to that person across the table from me enjoying a cup of coffee, to that next door neighbor who just got some bad news from their doctor, to my friend who just lost her job and she's not sure how she's going to make ends meet, to my friend who is living at the top of the world and thinks everything's great and this world's never going to end and they don't think they have any need for a savior. Do I understand it's my moment? Jesus put me in this spot. He placed you all in Huntsville, Alabama because there are people in Huntsville that need to know Jesus. Is our attitude such that we understand how we live before others really matters because it unlocks the door for those conversations. We only get one crack at it. No do-overs. I play golf poorly, but I play golf. I've played almost every Robert Trent Jones course. I'm contributing to the Alabama economy as best I can. I've played all those pretty poorly. 
Uh, but there are no mulligans. There's no do-overs. We have one opportunity. How will we impact this generation? And that leads me to, I think, really the key sentence in this passage where Paul asks the rhetorical question, who is sufficient for these things? Paul's looking at his own life. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good church planner. I, I, can, I can get it done. But I'm nothing compared to the Apostle Paul. Look at all the churches Paul planted. I can't begin to hold a candle to him. And Paul looked at his own life. He goes, I, there's no way in the world I can do this. Not apart from Christ. But Christ is in us. And Christ calls us to trust him and to follow him. So here, bottom line, is the application. I would encourage every one of us to pray today, this week, the rest of our lives. Simple prayer that says this, Lord... Make me and pick the one you like. Trophy, fragrance, love letter. Right? You, you probably won't remember all three, so just pick one that you think is best. Right? Maybe love letter. That, that's, that, I, I like the love letter. But pick whichever one is good for you. You say, Lord, make me that person in at least one other person's life this week. And if you pray that prayer, God will begin to put that attitude in you that says the way you live really matters, and you'll begin to be cognizant of that, and you'll grow in that, and you'll begin to be someone that people look at and go, there's something different. And as Justly says, that opens the door to the conversation about Jesus. Intentionally offer a public display of what it means to belong to Jesus. Let others see him in us. May the aroma of Christ, regardless of people's reactions, so fill our lives that people could be in the next room over and know there's somebody here that bears some resemblance to Jesus. May our love letters be less political and more gospel-centered. Less a frame of mind on how much we agree on, but rather on how much does everyone need to know Jesus. So even when you're tempted to want to give your neighbor a Dear John letter... (laughs) What you end up giving them is a love letter from Christ. If we're going to be a people of evangelism, it begins with our attitude. How we live before others really, really, really matters. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for uh, the work that you're doing in the EPC and church planting. I thank you for the young men and women throughout this nation who are engaged in that process. Father, I thank you for Central Church be the church that not only endorses and encourages, but invests in church planting in, in such a positive way. And Lord, it, it would be easy for us just to celebrate this morning and maybe to sit back and to rest a little bit on our, on our laurels. But we'd miss the mark so badly. We would forget that there are people on our street, people in our office, friends that we go to, to middle school with or high school with that don't know you. And their lives, although they may may look good on the outside, are filled with fear and anxiety and and questions. But Lord, if we don't live in a way that that reflects your grace, if we live in human arrogance, or if we isolate ourselves, we probably will never get the chance to do that which you have called us to in this generation, which is to be the fragrance, to be trophies, to be the love letters of Jesus. So Father, we pray that you would give us that opportunity this week with at least one person, that our lives would be lived in a way that they would see Jesus in order that we might talk to them about him. We pray in his name. Amen.